מכל הארץ, אני שומעת על תורים של מצפיות ומצביעים, מתפקדות ומתפקדים, שרוצות חזרה את הבית שלהם, שרוצות ורוצים להחזיר את האמת לפוליטיקה, ואנשים באמת נעים בכמויות, ברוך השם, כמו שאומרות. It's Haaretz's Election Overdose, Episode 7, on Thursday, February the 11th. We're here to try and help you work out what's happened on the virtual campaign trail over the past seven days, in which the legal issues of one man have largely dominated the news agenda. Last Thursday night, he passed a voting cabinet, which was then ruled illegal by the Attorney General. Then on Friday, he called a bunch of judges in The Hague anti-Semites. On Monday, he was himself in court. Before a different set of judges, he hates even more pleading not guilty. And on Wednesday, he signed an agreement with a group who in the past have been considered by the Supreme Court so deplorable they can't even run in the election. I'm talking, of course, about Benjamin Netanyahu, who at the time of our recording this episode still hangs on as Prime Minister of Israel, even though Joe Biden seems to have lost his phone number. And if at least one of the polls published this week resembles the actual results of the election in five and a half weeks, he may hang on in that office in Jerusalem for quite a while yet. After all, who's going to stop him? Certainly not what's left of the Israeli left. I'm Anshul Pfeffer, and with me to try and make sense of these events and others is my co-host Dalia Shendin and our special guest this week, Ben Droyamini. Hi, Dalia. Hi. Hi, Dro. Thank you for having me. So, Dalia, I've spoken with two very senior figures in two different parties which have vowed to replace Netanyahu, and they both told me the same thing, that the internal polling they have shows that Netanyahu's ongoing trial in the Jerusalem District Court for bribery and fraud would have absolutely no effect on the Israeli electorate, which by now, in this fourth election, are all set in their views regarding the corruption allegations against the Prime Minister. And therefore, they're not going to be wasting their time on the campaign talking about it. Do you agree with their assessment? Well, we don't actually need these internal polls, which are great, you know, to say that we have inside information, but we have three previous election cycles to prove it. Netanyahu didn't exactly win them, but he also didn't exactly lose them. And I kind of feel like this is Groundhog Day all over again, because you and I faced this question when we were giving talks just before the September 2019 elections. People were asking the same question, and we said pretty much the same thing. People have factored all of this stuff into account. And so it's hard to see how it's going to change anybody's mind. I also want to point out that one of my favorite data points over the course of the last week, not an electoral poll, but a poll about how certain people are of their voting choice. And this was a poll by the Israel Democracy Institute, the Israel Voice Index Survey, which when they broke down how certain people were of their party choice based on how they had voted in 2015, what we found is that people who voted for center-left parties were a lot less certain, which makes sense. Their parties are all over the place. Their parties keep changing. But Likud voters, about 70% of them were either very or pretty certain of who they were going to vote for. That's a lot. 70% means they're really retaining most of their votes, and everybody's known about all of the legal troubles. It does mean that 30% of their votes might be vulnerable. And if you want to read about this poll, you can go to the show notes where I've linked to it. If I may, I think that honesty uh, that we are talking about and corruption is not the main thing that people are looking for. I mean, when you have polls, and I guess uh, you are familiar with some polls that I'm talking about. A few. It's not what people are looking for. Meaning that we want somebody who can run the country, and we don't mind if he is a crook. And if he is a corrupted a bit, well, it's not a big deal as long as... He's doing the right things, and some people think that he's doing the right things, some people think he does not. But, but, 
saying I'm honest, like what Benny Gantz is saying now in this campaign, I'm honest. I mean, this is not something which is appealing to the people. No, so, this, this is an election about competence, not about and honesty. Exactly, exactly. You defined it uh, in the right way. Now, it's even more than that, if I may say. It's even more than that, because I think as more as people speak against Netanyahu and against his uh, corruption, his tribe is becoming much more united. So, to my opinion, for example, the question of the continuation of the legal process before the election will serve Netanyahu. I mean, for him... Let's not talk about, uh, uh, for example, his uh, surrender to the uh, ultra-Orthodox, to the Haredim. He doesn't want it. He wants people to speak about him because it will unite the people. Let's talk about the real problems of Israel. Uh, maybe we are going to disagree about the problems, but let's talk about it. Let's talk about the uh, right-wing parties that are creating a one-nation state or a binational state, something which me, as a Zionist, I'm totally against. But let's talk about it. And he doesn't want us to talk about it. He wants us to talk about him. People don't always understand about the populist leader. When they are attacked, they sometimes do better because they play into the victimization. What else happened this week, Angel? Well, I think the main event, at least for me this week, was the signing of the surplus votes agreement between Likud and religious Zionism. That's the name that Batello Smotrich has chosen for his alliance uh, with the neo-Kohanist Jewish Power Party and the homophobic Noam Party. And it's a misleading name because, according to all polling and anecdotal evidence that we have, no more than a quarter of traditional religious Zionist Israelis will be voting for them. But since I'm numerically challenged, Dalia, why don't you explain to our listeners what a surplus votes agreement is? Yeah, to do this, we have to go through a few basics about the electoral system in Israel. And maybe people know this, but just to remind everybody, the threshold, the percentage a party needs to get to enter parliament is 3.25% of all the votes. In recent years, that comes out to about 140,000 votes, depending on turnout. From there, we tally up all the votes for each party and calculate them as a percentage of 120. And it's pure proportional representation here. We don't have any complex regional representation or an electoral college, so it sounds simple so far. But the minimum threshold yields four seats. And then beyond that, each additional seat usually is about 34 to 35,000 votes. Now, a party gets into Knesset, if it can be divided perfectly by 35,000, then they have an even number of seats. But what if there's an extra 10,000 votes? Where do they go? There's no such thing as one third of a seat. So we have a complex method of distributing those extra votes. We won't get into it too much. It's called the batter offer method here, the Dant method everywhere else. Because Israeli politicians are so collegial and cooperative and supportive in Mifarganim, they sometimes share their votes, which is why in the days after elections, we sometimes see a change of maybe one or two Knesset seats following the counting of the final results. I think the important thing to note about the surplus vote sharing uh, tradition in Israeli society is that it has become a symbol of a kind of partnership. So nobody really understands math. You're not alone. But when people see that these parties are supporting one another, it's basically a statement of mutual support for one another. And so this is a partnership that's very significant. Which, you know, we spoke last week about how Netanyahu has gone about detoxifying Jewish supremacy by bringing in Jewish power. This is the second time he's done it. He did it in the first election of the series in April 29. He tried again a couple of times less successfully. He succeeded again in creating this alliance between three parties, which... None of them alone would have crossed the threshold. I want to say only one word about it. Shame. That's concise. That's, that's concise and accurate. 
I just say that Netanyahu went a step forward this week with the surplus votes agreements. As Dalia said, it's a partnership. But it's even more than a partnership because what it means is not only will the whatever number of sad, deluded racists vote for this party themselves, but every Likudnik, every voter of Likud, which is about a quarter of the country, according to the polls, will basically be voting for both parties because their votes could help put another one of these races into a seat in the Knesset. And considering they're so close to the threshold, I mean, they're polling at four or five seats, every single vote like that will count. But basically what Netanyahu is doing here is he's taking a traditional right-wing party, which many people don't like Likud, obviously, but it's a true grassroots national party with roots going back to 1920 as the the Zionist revisionist movement. And he's basically taking them down to, to, to really to the bottom by forcing everybody who's going to vote Likud to be also giving a secondary vote for the most racist party that we've had, we've had here in the running, and as Draw said in one word, shame. And that's not the only thing which is going to help Netanyahu win this election, at least according to one poll published this week. The centre-left opposition is giving him plenty of help as well. Dalia, as our resident pollster, can you present the findings of this poll? Well, I wish it was only one poll, but in fact, it's two polls out of the last seven, which are all the polls that at least I know about that have been published publicly since the lists were closed. And the reason why we think about it as one poll is because the second poll, some people have doubts about it. It's a polling company led by a former Netanyahu crony. And so not everybody wants to you know, take it seriously. But the fact is, sometimes he's right. Maybe it's a broken clock thing. There are two polls showing merits going under the threshold. There's total panic inside merit. They are sharing their panic with us. The thing is to gauge the question or the danger that merits will really go under the threshold. We don't only have to look at the polls. We can also look at recent history. I always say polls are one indicator, but merits has managed to cross the threshold every time it's run since 1992, which is kind of surprising considering how poorly the left in Israel is doing. And that's why we've brought Ben Dror to talk about it with us. So merits usually does squeak in also in terms of its identity. It's one of the most stable parties, considering how many parties are new, merging, uniting, collapsing. Um, And it did change shape a little bit in September 2019 and in March 2020 with these strange unifications. But I think that it still has a very strong identity relative to these bizarre bubble parties or pop-up parties, which is what I like to call blue and white, which no longer exists. Uh, Having said that, they pretty much trade votes with labor. And I think what we saw is a rise in labor surveys as we have all noted there's been a sort of resurrection. Labor wasn't crossing a threshold, and now it's polling regularly at six or seven seats. That definitely comes at the expense of merits because these are people who are very overlapping ideologically. Basically, we must save merits campaign began the moment that Mirav Micheli was elected two weeks ago. It was, it was just so predictable. Not not just the polls, but the the general atmosphere. Partly because Mirav Micheli and the subsequent. Uh, primaries for the for Labour's list, a number of uh, other potential MKs were voted in who are pretty indistinguishable from merits in many ways, not just ideology, but also that kind of Tel Aviv bubble vibe uh, that they give off. It's really hard to say who's who's now to the left of whom. Is it merits or is it Labour? And that 
you know, that that kind of save us from from oblivion campaign that Marys have been running now for I don't know how many elections is it's beginning to wear thin. And, I and think I'm they've been running that campaign pretty much since the electoral threshold was raised to three point two five. I agree. As someone who sort of is, is seesawing between merits and labor, it's starting to grate that kind of campaign. And if you can't run an entire campaign without appealing to your voters to save you from oblivion, and basically you can't explain actually why they should vote for you otherwise. Just not not just why we need to save you, but why we need to vote for you, then it's it's a pathetic, it's beginning to be a bit of a pathetic excuse for a party. One, one paradox of the Israeli public opinion is that Likud, with Netanyahu, they are going to have uh, one seat for the Knesset from the Israeli Arabs and not Neretz. What happened? What happened? Well, that's what that's, you're here to tell yeah. us. And we will speak about it. For many years, he was a prominent political columnist at Ma'ariv newspaper, actually for 14 years. And then since 2014, he's been a columnist for Yediot Achronot, one of Israel's oldest and highest circulating daily newspapers. It was the highest circulating newspaper until it was overshadowed by the freebie Israel Hayom, Netanyahu's mouthpiece. Ben Joramini also wrote a book called The Industry of Lies, analyzing how critics of Israel's policies make their case in international media and civil society and accusing them of, well, lies. <laughs> uh, we invited him because Ben Dror considers himself to have once been prominent and activist in the left on some level, but he has become famous or infamous for hard-hitting critiques of the left. Ben Dror, welcome to the show. Thank you. And I want to start by asking you uh, something that is based on a personal anecdote. One time I wrote an article in which I quoted something that you had written and I called you a right-wing columnist and you right away contacted me and said, you can't call me right-wing. Uh, and so I want to ask... Why do you think the left in Israel has gotten so far off track to the point where you spent a lot of your time criticizing the left? But why were you nevertheless determined to not be considered right wing, even though that's how you spend much of your ink? Uh, well, it's a bit com- complicated. I mean, we are uh, uh, used to uh, uh, categorize people uh, being left wing, uh, right wing. I'm not there. I'm not there. I don't like I don't like to be uh, in that place uh, because I think in uh, some aspects, uh, yeah, I do see what the right-wingers uh, are saying and I do agree with them. And sometimes I see what uh, left-wingers are saying and, and I do agree with them. So somehow I'm uh, in the center. And Because you pick and choose from each because side? No, 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 because, because I have to wake up every morning and to look at the facts, at the circumstances and then to make up my mind. And I don't want to be in one camp. I don't have to be. When uh, right-wingers are saying that uh, Palestinians are not willing to solve the problem by two states for two peoples, I think they're right. I think they're right. The conclusion is not that we have to build more settlements. And here I'm becoming a leftist. Why? Because the left, generally speaking, I'm speaking mainly about the Zionist left, Zionist left is saying that we need a solution. We have to make a kind of two-state uh, for two-people solution, which I accept, which I accept. Because I don't want a binational state. I don't want the one-state solution. I want a Jewish, liberal, democratic state. That's what I want. I'm a Zionist. And for me, Zionism is not settlements. For me, Zionism is the right for self-determination. Because this is a basic right 
the people's it's not racism where did the left lose its political audience in israel well it's it's i mean it's a process it's not there is not one reason but one of the reasons is when i read so many articles and when i hear so many expressions coming from left wingers they don't take seriously the people who vote for right wing parties they don't think that they have uh their autonomy to think that maybe maybe they enjoy their life maybe the people from underdevelopment towns as we call them Arepituach in Israel people from Dimona and Yerucham and uh, Maalot you know why they vote for the Likud? because their life in the last 10 years became better than before they became better and so many times we ignore the facts I don't think that they are right I think that for the long run it's a problem And when you speak with them, and I do, because I'm going to Yerucham, I'm going to Maalot, I'm going to Dimona, and I speak with the people. When I'm telling them, look, for the long run, we have two main problems. One is the right-wing parties are leading us to a one-state solution. No more Zionism. No more. Because actually, the right-wing parties are the perpetrators of the ideology of the extreme left, not of the left. So they are building the one-state solution which the BDS is uh, looking for. I'm not in the right-wing camp. I'm not in the left-wing camp. But I do speak with the right-wing people. And you're saying the left doesn't do that? That they and look I'm down saying, on them? Yeah, and I'm saying... Is that why they're losing? Yeah, let's take Yaakov Talmon, Jacob Talmon, in his famous books about uh, solidarity and nationalism and so on. And he explained it much better than me. People are looking for solidarity. And here is a paradox. Actually, when they vote for the right-wing parties, it's part of, of something which is very emotional, but they are looking for solidarity. And in a way, they feel... that the left-wingers who are going to the UN to the, and, and to the UN Human Rights Council, they are leaving them behind. They are begging in a way, speak with us. Don't go to the uh, 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 Venezuela ambassador and tell him that Israel is committing crimes, which is a lie for itself. The thing is that I, I don't disagree with a lot of your ideological analysis of where the left have gone wrong, but you're talking about such a small part of Israeli discourse that that's not... What we call in Israel the left it's it's the far it's left. like on the far reaches of the far left but what's but what's happening in Israeli politics is what we used to call left which is used to be the labor party has lost all credibility and lost almost all of its seats and at the same time what you're calling right which you're saying people are going to vote for the right the right hasn't grown it Likud has not grown if you Likud in, in the 1980s got much more seats than it's got in the last 20 years on, on average there never really was an Israeli left of the kind that you uh, that, that you describe labor which was the the party of power and which was a centrist party has lost to other centrist parties and it was dash in 77 and it's yes it did in 2021 and other centrist parties in the middle but that's it's not that the left lost anything because the left left never really existed in Israel okay I like very much Tsipi Livni. Oh, good, because we had her on our second episode, and okay. everybody's welcome to listen okay. to it. Okay, and Tsipi Livni, even it was published, so I can say it, it's not a secret. She wanted me to be a, a Knesset member in her party, the movement. And uh, we have, until now, I think, very honest and great uh, relationship. And one day, I listened to uh, the 
most popular uh, radio program with Ariya Golan, and he spoke with her about uh, breaking the silence. This is Breaking the Silence, the Shobrich human Dikar. rights uh, organization of yeah. ex-soldiers who recount what they saw in their military service in the West Bank and in the Gaza. No doubt that Tsipi Livni is a very devoted Zionist. No doubt about it. And uh, she spoke four minutes. And out of the four minutes, she said something like, I don't like what they are doing uh, uh, overseas. I don't lo- like what they are doing in the UN. I don't like uh, what they are doing in the American University. And so on. that's okay. And then for three minutes and a half, and even more, she spoke about... Israel is a democracy. I'm so proud that we have this kind of NGOs. And, and uh, uh, how great it is that uh, we can criticize ourselves. I mean, whoever listened to her in that four minutes understood that she admires them. Or she admires democracy. No, no. Isn't there no, a difference no, between no, no, a specific that's and death exactly, on the ground rule? That's here we are coming to the point. I mean, she did not mean it. She did not mean it. She, because she really dislikes them. But for four minutes, whoever from the voters of the center... Whoever listened to her understood that she is in their side. And I immediately spoke with her. I mean, a minute after we uh, were on the phone. And I told her, what are you doing? What are you? Tzipi, what did you do to yourself? What did you do? If you ask the people, even those who are voting for the right-wing parties, you will find that actually they adopted the liberal Zionist attitudes to war, for example, the two-state solution. I mean, there is a majority supporting the Barely. two-state solution. Yeah, but they don't like, for example, they are not uh, really enthusiastic about settlements. No, we don't want them. We, we don't care about it. They like the settlers. They don't like the settlements. True. It's very, it's very interesting. Now, how come that we are losing them? How come that we, when I'm saying we now, for a moment, we are in the same boat? Maybe we, we disagree about a lot of other issues, but, but we want them. We need them in the, in the big camp that is supporting a decent solution with the Palestinians. Now, but we are losing them because they are voting for parties that are against the two states for two people solution. They are voting for other parties against their own will. And we are losing them. And if I'm trying to analyze why we are losing them, It's because of that, because of the impression, not because of uh, the formal uh, uh, platform of the Labour Party, because, uh, I mean, they support, actually, much more the platform of the Labour Party, but they will vote for the Likud. It's not all. That's not exactly right. We are speaking about, correct me if I'm wrong, about 30% of the voters of the right-wing parties. They are supposed to be with us. And what happened now? Now, we are speaking about the election of now. The right-wing partings are attacking something like 10 seats of the Knesset to the right-wing bloc, which is a tragedy. I'm not sure that we are going to uh, somehow kick out Netanyahu, but I'm sure that the right-wing bloc is going to be much stronger. But do you think the problem is just that the left is losing the battle of ideas and is badly presenting its ideas to the Israeli public? Or that also there's a leadership issue. The left doesn't have a leader, not only somebody who can articulate their ideology, but also someone who is a professional politician, whereas the right wing have had for the last 20-something years an ultimate uh, politician leading them, no matter his ideology. And, that, I, and that's really the problem. Can I add to that question yeah. for a second? Maybe there's no opportunity for them to have such a towering uh, f- leadership figure because they never are in senior positions in government recently. Yeah. It's, it's a very good point because, yes, it is, of course. I mean, the personal question, speaking about election, is uh, highly important. We don't have somebody 
who can deal. I mean, Benny Gantz, unfortunately, is not the person. I mean, he's a very nice guy, but this, this, it's exactly his problem. He's a nice guy. I mean, and he is not, he is not perceived as a leader. And Netanyahu is perceived as a leader. And we don't have, I mean, I mean, when I'm looking at the left, I mean, we don't have somebody who can combine being Leumi, national in Hebrew and English national. It gets uh, confused with nationalism. Yeah, it's confusing a bit, but, but I'm speaking about uh, being a patriot from one hand and uh, uh, being for the two-state uh, uh, solution from the other. We don't have. We don't have. Maybe, maybe uh, Gabi Ashkenazi has the personality. I mean, I don't know if you like him or not, but it's not the point. The point, maybe, uh, but he's not running anymore. Let me ask you something, because you went through this kind of transition where you were seen as a prominent figure in the Israeli left for some time, and at some point there was a breaking point, and that had a personal cost for you. Can you tell us briefly what yeah. you went through? Yeah, when I'm looking at myself 20 years ago, when I got married, okay, half of my friends, half of my friends from the left are not speaking with me anymore. Now, I did not become a right-winger, but I am a Zionist, a devoted Zionist, and then they do not speak with me anymore. Why? Why? I mean, you can, we can have debates. We, we don't have to agree. Now, if they are doing it to me, just think psychologically about the people who are voting for the right-wing parties, which I'm not. In a way, this patronization, this kind of, if you are not with us, we are not even speaking to you, this is the atmosphere that people from the right-wing party feel about the left-wingers. You don't take us seriously. We have our opinions. We have our reasons. Look at us. Speak with us. And you don't do it. It's not a personal tragedy. It's a national tragedy. And Dori Mini, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And before we go on to your favorite bit of the show, Dahlia, we've been seeing a lot in headlines in recent days, and that's why the hell is Joe Biden, by now America's new president for all of three weeks, letting Netanyahu sit fallenly by the phone like a love-struck teenager and not calling him. And since we're an election overdose and not a diplomacy denial podcast, let's put aside the possible reasons for this silence from Biden and just deal with the possible electoral implications that it could have. It's a good question. My real answer is that Biden is Biden his time. Now, I think I made that up. But anyway, the point is, it is becoming something that the Israeli media is noticing. I'm seeing, you know, the wisecracks going around. Will it hurt Netanyahu? I, I have a hard time seeing that it's actually going to touch him at the electoral level. I think that we've probably talked about this before. Israelis you know, are a little bit parochial. They don't always look outside the borders of their own country, such as they are. And there is a general expectation that America is always on Israel's side, and that Netanyahu, being the towering, masterful statesperson, can always work it out. So it's not even a headline this week. It's sort of a mini headline this week, and I think it will probably be over by next week. I don't think Biden would actually pick a fight in any serious way with Netanyahu. Therefore, I'm going to say that it's not really going to affect the elections. What do you think? It could affect the election because Netanyahu has made so much out of his statesmanship and you know, we, we, we can't forget the second of this series of elections Likud's whole campaign was was based on photographs of Bibi and Trump standing together I think that if it becomes clear at some point during this 
this campaign that Netanyahu is being cold shouldered by Washington, even if it's not in any really overt way, but just the fact that the phone call hasn't come through and who knows when it is going to come through. I think there's going to be, at least in a small part of his support, people saying, well, he's no longer the master statesman. He's not handling COVID in any great way. I'm less inclined as I was before to vote for him. I think it'll be a very small effect. I mean, he has so many other world leaders he can point to where he's had wonderful relations with them and he can just you know, bring out a whole, I, trot I out agree. a whole I don't, I don't think it's going to be a big effect. But since Netanyahu himself thought this was such an important thing to emphasize in the previous elections, it obviously does count for something. And we're talking about an election where one seat here or there could change everything. So I think that every bit counts and this could have some effect on a sliver perhaps, but... Every sliver matters, especially for Nintendo. We'll see if the headline sticks around for next week. Let's talk about what we're seeing now that the lists are closed in terms of what the parties are saying. How are they appealing to the voters? What's their presence like on the street? They're not. I disagree because I'm seeing them everywhere. Here's what I've got. I get pop-up ads on every social media, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, everything. And you know who they're from? Gidon Sar. They think I'm a target voter. I don't know why. Anything else you've seen? Well, I've seen also, uh, I've I found Gideon Sao following me. He's online. trolling both of us. Yes, it's, uh, it's pretty incredible. And I'm seeing a few other parties doing that. But when we do venture out in the street, even though we're in COVID times and we do that less than we usually do, we're not feeling as much of an election atmosphere. Here and there on the Ayalon Highway, there's like one or two signs almost hiding. It's not like like elections that we used to perhaps everyone's biding their time and they're going to swamp us with with uh, with traditional street presence everything on the last few weeks of uh, of the campaign but right now it's feeling a very virtual campaign as i said at the beginning mainly online and even there still the the tempo isn't what you'd expect for what we're now five and a half weeks left I think... Uh, There's not much of an atmosphere yet, but I'm going to point out one more field presence that I'm seeing, and that is Yaron Zalicha, who has never crossed the threshold yet in surveys. He's running this small economic party, but his face is on every bus in Tel Aviv. The other uh, interesting banner ad that I got on my social media feed, finally from a left-wing party, was from Meretz. And what did they ask for? They asked for money. It was a crowdfunded campaign. They said, you know, pitch in, and the little graphic on this ad had three people in it. Itamar Ben-Gvir, Betsala Smotrich, and Bibi. And the caption was, they don't want you to give money to us, Meretz. I don't know how effective that is. No, I think, as we said before, Meretz used to be the the party of the copywriters, of the campaign experts. Their campaigns were second to none in the past. And I think this is something that you want to touch upon. I do, because it has to do with our jingles. This is a little bit of a medley of 28 years of Merit's jingles. Okay, it's not every single campaign, but it's a few of them together. And it's interesting that they say things, the text of these jingles say things like, we're left wing, put us in the government, it's time, we stand for social policies, we protect regular people, individual rights, freedom. One of the captions that really has stuck in my head from 1999 was I want to be free in my country and that they're proud to be left. That was the 2019 jingle you just heard. What's interesting is that the notion of Merits as a left-wing party in these ads is very much about domestic themes. In 2003, they had a kind of boring ad, but it was a laundry list of social policies to protect consumers, homeowners, working parents, advanced gender equality, affordable housing. And at other times, it's all about 
protecting those individual rights and freedom and I rely on myself. That actually was a slogan in one of their ads. But oddly, what you don't often see in these ads is much discussion of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The jingles are really hip and cheerful and they're not really dealing with the conflict issues. The irony, as we've discussed before, is that it doesn't seem to really matter for the Israeli voters because for them, left-wing means one thing only. Giving in to the Palestinians, they won't have it. At least for the half of Israel's voters who are right-wing, Meretz, because it supports a two-state solution, they see Meretz as radical left. That's why Meretz leaders, this is something Ben-Dor alluded to before, he was talking about labor, but they often say the tragedy is that, you know, 60% of Israelis agree with our basic social approach, liberal democracy, uh, protecting individual rights, advancing certain socially liberal policies, but only 4% roughly in recent years vote for Meretz, and that's because they see them as left-wing on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. That's why they might go under the threshold. I think that also they see Meretz as being ineffectual in general and not really the kind of party that's going to roll up its sleeves and actually fight for for anything but perhaps a good parking spot outside the, a restaurant in Tel Aviv. But it's a bit of a snowball. It's because they don't have a strong pres- presence in Knesset that they don't get into the coalitions and therefore they can't do very much. We've seen uh, smaller position parties showing that they can fight for things and I, I can't remember a, a fighting MK of merits for a very long time. I think there's some merits MKs who would disagree with you. I'm sure they would, but they're wrong. And that wraps up our seventh election overdose, which you can hear on Haritz.com, your destination for all fine Israeli election coverage and much more, or listen to us on the podcast provider of your preference. I'd like to thank our special guest this week, Ben Joyamini, our producer, Jantan Manevich, my co-host, Dalia Shendlin, and most of all, you, dear listener. You can follow Dalia and me on Twitter, where we will try to respond to at least some of your feedback and questions. Be sure to join us next week for another election overdose. Meanwhile, keep those surplus votes coming in. Someone will count them eventually. Have a smashing weekend wherever you are. Shabbat shalom from Aaron's Towers in Tel Aviv.